I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Alright guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here of course with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr. John Reed, the pragmatic ecologist. Welcome, John. Thank you, fellas. How are you? Yeah, we're good, mate. We the world great. is twisted around and upside down at the moment. It's, uh, it's our first episode since this coronavirus thing's come on the scene. It's what we're doing. It's a different world. But it's created an opportunity for us to actually sit down with you this afternoon, which has been great. Absolutely, yeah. You guys have been chasing for a while and I've been keen to do this, but uh, yeah, normally I'm pretty busy out in the field. So yeah, I'm around and yeah, it's great to come up here in the lovely Adelaide Hills and, and catch up with you. Yeah, and you're, you're based on the Air Peninsula, mate, aren't you? So you'll be hunkering down there. Yes, that's right. We're going home tomorrow afternoon, and we'll we'll sort of surf it out there. I reckon just uh, wait until wait until this thing all all passes. Yeah, and I think it will pass it, one sunset at a time. I'm sure it will. Yeah, might be two years away. <laughs> Whoa! No, it will pass. I'm kidding. <laughs> so, mate, cats big issue in Australia. A lot of people don't even realise that from overseas, but us here in Australia know it very well. And yet, still today, people have their cats roaming around the countryside. Yet here we are in South Australia with the worst mammal extinction rate in the universe. What can we do about cats? Yeah, so it's a big question. I mean, it's a big issue here in South Australia. It's a big issue around the world. So even though Australia and New Zealand are probably ahead of the game with um, managing cats, way ahead of, of you know the states in Europe and and Asia, but um, yeah, very big issue. And I guess yeah, sort of once again up in this area, John Walmsley was one of the, the pioneers of you know showing the impact of cats to wildlife. And that was how I first got interested, looking at um, looking at little pygmy cobhead snakes up here in the Adelaide Hills, and uh, and some some of the rare birds, and looking at what was impacting them. And, and cats were definitely um, yeah serious threats to, to those species. And I, I guess I, I've been interested in cats and managing cats and the most effective way of managing cats for yeah thirty odd years now. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of whole lot of issues around cats. And I, I should say there at the outset that um, yeah, I'm not a cat hater at all. Cats have a cats are awesome animals. They've got a really important role to play in society. They're they're great companion animals. Uh, the problem is when they go outside and when they're let, allowed to roam outside. So yeah, there's a there's a it's a very complex issue. And it's not good for the cat either, is it? Being out and about where there's roads and dogs and other cats yeah well that's exactly right you know my initial concerns and interest with cats was on their wildlife predation but since looking into it a lot more and and doing some research for a book i wrote all about the management of cats i found that uh yeah there's a lot of different people a lot of different professions i guess have are concerned about free-ranging cats for for a range of reasons and yeah cat safety is is one thing so um a lot of cats yeah get bowled over on the roads or in, in fights or fights with dogs and things like that. It's not good for cat welfare. And a lot of the animal welfare organisations say, uh, you know, they're really strong about saying keep your cat indoors for its, its own safety. And there's other issues too. There's um, safety um, and disease and things like that. So cats transmit diseases to other cats, to wildlife and to humans. And one of the most important ones is toxoplasmosis. So, yeah, even when my wife was uh, pregnant. We were really careful. You know, she didn't eat meat and things like that that were, you know could transmit toxo. And so we've known for for years, for decades, that toxo causes birth defects and things like that. And it's only transmitted by cats. So, so it's a little little parasite that um, breeds in the cat's stomach. Doesn't affect the cat at all. Cat is the definite host. If it wasn't for for outdoor cats, toxo would disappear. 
But um, it's now known that this toxo causes uh, latent mental health issues in people. Um, so if they're exposed when they're 20, even when they're 60 or 70 or 80, it, it enhances or it gives an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease and you know depression and and, a ho- and increases suicide rates and all these sort of things. So it's yeah, it's um, a, a really big thing and, and another really important reason for managing cats properly. I've even heard that the toxoplasmosis can cause risk taking. Have you heard about this? Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's how it's designed. So it's it's a really it's a really amazing uh, deception by this tiny little parasite. So uh, it was first discovered. This, the mental health issues were first discovered by scientists looking at mice, and they found that uh, mice that were infected with toxoplasmosis actually found cat urine attractive, and would and lose their fear for cats. And mice and rats would do that, and um, and those that weren't obviously ran away when they smelt cats, and then. Subsequent to that, um, we found a whole lot of other issues with wildlife as well. So, so bandicoots that infected by toxo um, lose their fear. They're often wandering around in the daytime. They're wandering around the roads. They're confused. So often, sometimes we see confused-looking wildlife. And in places with high incidence of toxoplasmosis, um, Kangaroo Island is one of them. Areas where there's high cat densities, often that's that's the reason. Yeah, and it, it flows through to people as well. The, the same, the same processes with the brain and everything like that cause these these mental illnesses in in people as well is that a detectable thing then you can test for toxo absolutely yeah yeah. so and toxo can be it's even more bizarre than it sounds toxo can be spread in marine environments it's one of the main killers of monk seals it's a main killer of sea otters in places on the u.s coastline and around hawaii we've got high densities of cats living in towns and the sewage effluent goes down toxo is being spread to the marine organisms as well so it's it's really widespread and we're just learning yeah the, the issues about it and so it's so it's so uh, serious that now we're talking about you know you shouldn't flush your kitty litter down the toilet in places where it goes out to sea and things like that because it's a it's a primary threat to many of our marine animals and birds birds get toxo and, and die as well fairly topical at the moment with coronavirus because that's come from animals too it's amazing how many of these things do transmit from animals to humans and, and through the food chain as well so yeah remember this is this is something designed really really sort of a co-evolution between the parasite and the cat and so the reason that um, it's beneficial to cats is that obviously the mice or you know the rats that their prey are easier to catch so it's, it's been so what they're trying to do is spread this thing, keep it going. It's great for the, the parasite, but it's just really bad for the prey, and it's really bad for the unintended prey like humans and seals and otters and everything like that as well. So it's yeah, it's a it's a really interesting topic that I really wasn't aware of at all until I started you know doing this research about it, and it's now one of the main drivers for cat management worldwide. So the cats effectively are dumbing their prey down. Like they've just got to get a claw in their prey. The prey can survive, but they just get the toxoplasmosis how's it transmitted so toxo so it's a, a parasite it, la- it lays these little things called ursists basically the seed tiny and you know a, i forget what the details are but you know like a handful of soil um, a sand pit where a cat's defecated can have you know hold tens hundreds of thousands of ursists those ursists can then attach to, to grass things like that they get eaten by sheep or by mice or by by snails and it passed up the food chain until it gets back to the the cat and then the the cat then ingests it and the toxo completes its life cycle in the stomach of the cat and then with its feces it, it releases you know tens of thousands of oocytes and the, and the process goes on. Was there a study that people that are involved in high-speed motorcycle accidents had a statistically higher likelihood of having toxoplasmosis? 
I haven't heard the motorcycle. I've heard um, car crashes, uh, suicide rates, and interestingly, it affects females differently to males. It, it makes males more introverted. It makes females more risk-taking and things like that. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing, and we're still, still learning. And, and there's scientists all around the world who are studying now and finding out these things. It's, it's something that's really difficult to prove. It's not, you know, it's really difficult. And obviously, you can't get a whole whole heap of humans and deliberately infect them so it's, it's more of a causality a sort of a correlation type thing um but uh yeah it's a, it's, a, it's an amazing it's an amazing issue and it's really as i say it's really driving cat management takes me back to our horror wasp um, podcast adrian <laughs> it does, yeah. it's, um, it's amazing that things can do that so this parasite is working with a cat almost to it's part of why a cat is so successful absolutely absolutely wow. yeah I mean, they're, they're so good at what they do anyway, cats. They're always the top-order predator. People say they kill for fun. I think they just kill to be the top-order predator. You know, they just want to be good at what they do. And now they've got toxoplasmosis. They've got superpowers. So, so with, the killing, with the killing for fun, um, another study that I, I came across, um, you know, people say my cat's well-fed so I can let it go outside. That's, I often hear that. So, you know, my cat doesn't hunt wildlife because it's well-fed. A guy did a really interesting study with some cats and he gave them some salmon fresh salmon which was their favorite he gave them cat food and he gave them dead rats and their preference was the salmon they hardly ever touched the dead rat then he put a live rat in the cage when they stood when they'd been fully fed and they had a bowl of salmon there and they'd go and kill the rat and come back and eat the salmon so it's really hardwired into them and the, the reason for that is they're solitary hunters they're moving through the country they're just hardwired to hunt and you know normally they're hungry my dogs get in amongst a, a mob of goats or something like that. They just, you know, chase them all until they stop running. They're just hardwired to hunt. And cats are fantastic hunters, but unfortunately, they're not driven by hunger. They're driven by, you know, chasing live prey. So what can we do about this cat issue? I mean, there's more than one cat issue. There's a cat issue with feral cats living out in the desert. That's, that's a different issue from pet cats that sometimes go outside. And that's a different issue from cats that are fed by people in, in urban areas and peri-urban areas and you know you hear stories of you know the little old lady who's feeding 20 or 30 or 40 cats and things like that and they're all different issues with different different solutions so um, with truly feral cats they're difficult there's there's a few techniques and, and tools that are being used um, for them one is introduction or, or maintenance of, of dingo predations because dingoes are the top order predator dingoes definitely suppress fox predation and they slow down cats you know cats can evade dingoes so cats can coexist with them but they change their behavior they operate at different times of the day they're not as effective where there are dingoes around there are some baits some some cat specific baits that have been made well they're not cat specific but they've been designed for cats um, and they're pretty effective if cats are really hungry they'll take baits the issue with truly feral cats is if they're not really hungry then a, a little dried up sausage is not very attractive to them and they'd much rather go and go and hunt something uh, so so that that's really challenging then yeah with your with your pet cats what i've been saying and what a lot of people say cat societies vets welfare people say keep your cat indoors it's pretty simple build a cage for it build a, a catio or something like that it's better for the cat it's better for you the cat's there when you want it you know you're there when the cat needs you and uh, it's not getting out, it's not fighting, it's not transmitting diseases and things like that. And you know, a lot of people will say, it's cruel for a cat, you know, cats are meant to live outside. Well, there's a lot of people, a lot of people I've interviewed and, uh, and documented that have had either feral cats they've brought in, stray cats or, or house cats, and they've brought them inside, they've, they've, they've looked after them, they're a pet, you know. So unlike being, you know, the old Clayton's pet, the pet you have when you're not having a pet and you just let it go and you come back in a week's time and it's, it's still around, 
you, you look after it, you provide it with some entertainment and some stimulation and, and you feed it properly and, and that's the way we should go. And increasingly there are people breeding cats designed for indoors. So in, in the past maybe we tried to get the most aggressive cat, you know, that would maybe eat the most rats outside or, or beat up all the other cats and that, you know, that was a, a badge of honour. Now people are uh, breeding cats, pretty much like lap dogs, you know, that provide that, that, that role, that, that service that, and um, are, are really good for indoors. The, the cats that are being fed is a really big issue. Cat populations, cats are naturally solitary. Um, people erroneously um, call these accumulations of cats cat colonies, whereas they're not really colonies. They're not, cats aren't a colonial animal. Colonial animals like bees or wolves or, you know, they, they cooperate and they've got different functions and they regulate their breeding and they regulate their feeding and things like that. Cats don't do that. The, the more food you put there, the more cats you have. And, you know, you've probably all seen photos from Japan and places where you have hundreds of cats coming in and feeding in one place. So feeding cats, it's a really difficult issue because people are feeding a hungry cat. They think they're doing the right thing, putting food out there. You get more cats, you get more cats. And, uh, and really controlling the food resource is the, is the main thing that can be done to, you know, and stopping feeding. You know, we know it's really hard. We want to feed a dolphin when it comes up. We want to feed a duck that walks up to us. We want to feed a, a skinny cat. But, yeah, in, in all cases with wildlife, it's a, it, it sort of ends up in tears. With your first point about having dingoes being the topwater predator, this side of the dog fence, it's a really controversial issue, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the dog fence is, is a fantastic natural experiment. So you see uh, north dog fence, outside the dog fence, where there are more dingoes, there's more native wildlife. If, if you want to try and find a, a bilby or an amperda or a mulgara, you have to go north of the dog fence. There's, there are none left south of the dog fence. There's several reasons for that. One is that fox numbers are, are down a little bit. But also dingoes manage kangaroo numbers and goat numbers. and You don't get any feral goats north of the fence and things like that. So, so dingoes do definitely play a role there. But of course, south of the dog fence, we've got sheep. Australia was built on the, the, you know, the wool industry. Um, I think when the dingo fence was built, the wool industry was worth something like you know, 20% of the national GDP. Now you know, it wouldn't even register as 0.02%, but still we maintain this dog fence and we've got this really strict rules about keeping dogs away from even from national parks and large indigenous areas and you know things like that south of the fence so it, it is a it's a complex issue is it time mm. the dog fence came down is that what we're saying uh no i mean <laughs> well i mean if we want to have if you want to have a sheep industry yeah you, you can't but do we um, am i right in saying that the sheep industry just uses a lot of water an issue with with livestock is when they're grain fed and you, you know you've, you're using irrigation water to feed grain to fatten up these things you know that that is that's obviously an issue mm sustainably wise but um yeah if it's basically it's a decision that australia needs to make if you want to have lamb if you want to have wool you can't have dingoes in those areas or you need to really manage them carefully and you know you, you might rather than fencing dingoes out of the whole area maybe you fence sheep into an area and, or you use guard dogs or you, you you know you try and try and manage it some other ways but it is it's a complex issue i don't have the answer mm. but if we had dogs south of the fence dingoes south of the fence you think it would be better uh, there would be a lot. There wouldn't be overpopulation of kangaroos. There wouldn't be feral goats. There'd be more grass. There'd be more food for our wildlife. Um, there'd be less foxes. That's no question about that. Yeah. But there'd be less sheep as well. We'd have an issue with the dingoes hybridising with wild dogs too, wouldn't we? That's probably always been an issue anyway. It's always an issue, and it's an issue right throughout Australia anyway. So yeah, a lot of dingoes, or most dingoes, are you know, some form of hybrid at the moment. One question is, you know, what role, what, how important is that ecologically? You know, if you've got a, a dog out there that's 80% dingo and 20% uh, 
wild dog, you know, is it still performing the same ecological role? Is it still chasing kangaroos and chasing foxes and doing that sort of thing? Um, so, yeah, once again, the jury's out on that a bit. But um, generally, ecosystems are, are more balanced when you've got you know, your full suite of predators and, and things in the system. On a landholder scale, people, like you said, had cats to eat the rats and mice. If people start leaving their cats inside, do you think we'll see more introduced rodents in the environment? Well, I've just been walking around here and looking at a couple of big pythons and lace monitors and things like that. It can do a pretty good job of um, chasing mice and rats and things as well. So previously we had uh, quolls, you know, so there's a whole range of different, you know, there there are native Australian animals that can also eat rodents and and things pretty well as well. So it's it's possible. And, you know, there are some islands where they had, you know, mice and rats and, you know, they had rodents and they had cats. You remove the cats and the rodent numbers explode because there, there isn't another predator. But if you've got a balanced ecosystem with enough predatory birds and reptiles and and marsupials then it's going to alleviate that issue and and you know we've got traps and you know other things that we can we can use to to control rodents but also simple things like you know hygiene you you don't leave grain everywhere you don't leave food lying around you know that that's how you get lots of mice and rats around if you yeah there's there's other ways of managing it than having cats running around for sure can you talk a little bit about the felixer sure sure so the felix is a device that I've sort of been inventing over about the last 12 or 15 years and it's, it's now just got to the stage where it's been commercialised and it came about when um, managing cats up at um, Arrow Recovery, up at Roxby Downs, we're always getting cats sort of coming up against the cat-proof fence there and any time we tried to release bilbies and bedongs and bandicoots outside, they were just immediately knocked out by feral cats and cats are you know, very difficult to bait. If there's a lot of food around, as I mentioned, you know, they're, they're not attracted to baits when they're not really starving. And the alternate techniques are using leg hole traps or cage traps. You've got to bait them all the time. You get off-target impacts, things like that. You've got to check them every day. You've got to check them on Christmas morning and on New Year's morning and things like that. Obviously, anyone setting a trap anywhere has you know, the responsibility of checking to make sure the welfare of the animal that might be caught, whether it's a, a cat or it might be a, a sleeper lizard or a goanna or anything like that. And um, I was just trying to think of a way that, of, of targeting cats without targeting wildlife and and also the other issue with trying to trap cats is because they're hunters, they're very usually reluctant to go into a trap. They're reluctant to use food as a lure, so you know they, it, they're difficult to trap. So use the, I guess the, the the thought that cats are very fastidious about their cleanliness. If you get some um, gel or you know get them dirty in some way, they'll always go and lick themselves. I initially did some trials with some mates with some pets, so with pet cats and pet dogs and some some wallabies at Manada Zoo. I think it was I was squirting sauce and stuff on them. The dogs and the wallabies weren't the least bit concerned. The cats got really offended and went to a corner and licked it off. And then, <laughs> so I guess it developed from that and sort of worked through a whole lot of different mechanisms of, of squirting measured amounts of, of gel. Had to work out what sort of gel to use and how much, what, and the quantity. And you can put toxins in that and, and then develop a technique for differentiating between cats and wildlife. We don't want to squirt poisonous gel on koalas and on kangaroos and and lizards and echidnas and all all that sort of thing so uh, yeah just basically use an array of sensors these are lidar sensors that measure the distance they measure the the shape of the animal walking in front of them and the speed and the gait how long its legs are and if it fits a pattern that um, matches cats and foxes which uh, have quite long legs compared to australian animals then it's considered to be a target and a measured dose of toxin is, is squirted at that at that animal so yeah um wombats and koalas and and quolls have shorter legs than cats and foxes larger animals you know they're, t- they're too big so they block the machines from firing small animals can walk straight past it without even knowing and 
and they obviously they don't activate it. So every time an animal goes past, it's photographed. We assign it. We know whether it's a considered a target or not, and we can continuously improve the algorithms to to improve it. And and so we've now been trialling these for about four years. We've got a few publications. They're likely to be registered soon. We've got an international patent on it just last month. So it's all pretty exciting, and we're we're commercialising them now. So that. We've established a non-for-profit company. It's called Thylation. Thylation being the, you know, the root word for thylacine and thylacoleo. We, we're not saying we're going to eradicate cats from Australia, but we, I guess we, we're trying to help to restore the balance. We're putting in that, you know, that top-order predator there to pick off some of the cats, pick off the cats that won't take baits and things like that, and, uh, yeah, trying to, to yeah, Im- improve the conservation status of our, our mammals, reptiles and birds and things like that. That sounds super technical, like to measure the animal and all these sensors that must be involved. That's, that's a lot of work you must have put into that. Yeah, well, I must admit, I didn't do all the work. I had a few of the ideas, and I've been rounding up the money that's going to the engineers and things. So we use a, an Adelaide-based uh, engineering company called Applodyne, who have got software engineers and mechanical engineers. I call it the nerd factory. You go in there, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's full of nerds. But nerds are what you want to work with when you're doing this, and it is. It's, it's really technical. It's so technical that we have to actually fire the gel at 50 metres a second because we say we've got a range of four metres. We expect the cat to be walking past at a certain pace, and we, we've got to hit, we've got to detect that it's a cat and squirt it without the cat changing its speed or, or moving. And it's got to be that fast. Cats have got amazing reflexes. You've got to hit the cat before it even knows it's coming. So, and we've actually got some videos of, of cats, you know, walking along and just and being hit, and they sort of do a bit of a cartwheel, and then they stare, at, they, you know, they look up and they stare at the camera and go, you know, what was that? It doesn't hurt them, but it's so fast. And so, in order to to get all the software and, and the mechanics of, get, of getting that gel, that measured dose of gel onto the cat without hurting it, but really quickly, yeah, it's, it's very technical. They're, they're quite expensive machines at the moment, but we, yeah, we're trying to bring the price down and, and, and get them more available. So there's some trials happening at the moment and then they'll be able to be, like I say, available. People could buy them, have them on their properties. Parks and Wildlife can get them. And yeah, so it, it won't be quite... I mean, because we use toxin, then, you know, there's, there's all these regulations for that. So they've been used in national parks uh, for a couple of years now. They're, they've been used up in the APY lands, on Kangaroo Island, um, interstate. So they're being used in areas where there are night parrots and, and um, golden-shouldered parrots and in Northern Territory and, and now in Western Australia. So different states have, you know, they do the tests and they, they provide permission to use them to protect... Yeah, northern quolls and a whole range of species that are difficult to protect from cats using other techniques and we're just trialling them now in Tasmania and Victoria. We're also trialling a really cool um, adaption to it. Is It's called a wireless identification tag reader. So with your pet cat or if you've got a, for example, if you've got um, sheepdogs, sheepdogs don't activate it, they're too tall to activate it and they'll block it. But if they've got puppies, they would potentially activate it. If you put this little tag on your, on your puppy's collar, if the puppy gets within 30 metres of the machine, it detects it and shuts it down. And so you can effectively control feral cats but keep your pet cat safe, or you can control foxes but keep your dog safe. So so baits and things can't do that. You know, you, you put a bait out there and whatever it takes, it takes it. So increasingly we're improving the, the technology to, to make it more target-specific and you know deliver to exactly the animal we want to deliver it to. It's very exciting. That's exceptional. Yeah, so I was just—we were just talking before. You've got a, a tiger quoll here, a spotted tail quoll, and, and that's one of the few species we haven't tested in Australia. Spotted tail quolls sort of live along the eastern seaboard, and there are several threatened species in that habitat. And at the moment, we haven't got permission, and I understand why, to use felixes in that habitat until we've tested a whole lot of quolls and, and made sure that they don't activate it. And 
you know, there's a chance that maybe they would activate it, but do they groom and, you know, things like that. So that's one of the projects we're looking at at the moment is testing spotted tail quolls and actually Tassie devils and seeing if we can use them in Tasmania and in the eastern states um, in those wooded areas where the quolls are. But we've thoroughly tested northern quolls, things like that, and they're fine. They just pass straight underneath the sensors without activating them. So, yeah, it's, um, there's plenty of research and it's, it's all good fun. I love it. And I love how you're targeting areas that have sensitive species. Yeah, well, I mean, as I said, they're they're expensive at the moment. They cost about you know, so twelve thousand dollars to make, which is you know a, a lot of money. So obviously, you're not just putting them around the countryside. You're putting them in areas where other cat control techniques don't work, or in in, in concert with them. So in some places, if you get a, a drought, cats will be really hungry, and you put baits out. And the first time you bait, you might get eighty percent of your cats. The next time you bait, some of those cats have got a sublethal dose. They're they're awake to that. You might only get fifty percent. Eventually. It's the same with all sort of pest control. You end up with you know, a certain percentage of the animals that are awake to it and, and realise that the beauty of a felixer is that a cat can walk past it or any wildlife walks past it, they don't even know what's happening. It, it doesn't give them a, a negative stimulus until it recognises they're a target and then it fires. So a cat could be a really good hunter, not the least bit interested in going in a trap or taking a bait, but if he walks past you put a felixer in a place against a fence or on a, on a roadway or in uh, a clearing through some thick scrub and things like that, and eventually that cat will walk past and you can target it. Now, you've got a book that you've recently released. Would you like to let people know about it? Sure. Yeah, the book's called Among the Pigeons, Why Our Cats Belong Inside. So uh, it actually took about 15 years to write. Uh, it was a bit of a labour of love. Uh, I did a PhD sort of 15 years ago, and I can honestly say writing this book was more work than that far more work than that just the research going into it and making sure the writing was appealing and all that sort of stuff finding publishers and, and all the rest of it but um yeah the book sort of basically talks through my experiences in visiting cat welfare organizations cat owners wildlife practitioners ecologists around the world so there's chapters from the uk from spain greece japan hawaii canada us and obviously a lot from australia in places where i work up in the apy lands um the flinders ranges and, and other places, and uh, just looking at a whole range of issues associated with cats. And it's, it was an interesting writing. It's deliberately written for cat owners. It's very easy to, you know, there's, there seems to be sort of two sorts of people in the world, the people that like cats and that don't like cats. And so it's very easy to have a conversation about all the bad things about cats. But cats are really important. They're amazing animals. They're really important to a whole lot of people all around the world. And there's no reason why people shouldn't keep cats. But what I aimed to do was to engage with them and, you know, talk about the good points of cats, but also sort of identify and highlight some of the issues with cats, like Toxo we were talking about and, and just the welfare aspects. You know, your, your cat's better off. It's better for your cat. And, you know, interviewing really passionate cat owners and say, yeah, we learned the hard way. You know, our cat got run over. Now we keep a cat indoors. And, you know, that's a, a good story. So, yeah, sort of, sort of go through all those different issues and case studies and things like that and um, come up with a book. It's been going pretty well. It's got some really, really good reviews from, you know, Jane Goodall and some others. And, yeah, it's, it's out there. Sounds really good. I love the idea of building a catio. Catio. Just wanted to use that word. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great word. Um, before we wrap this thing up, I know that people want to hear a lot more from you because you've got a lot to talk about. And we're going to definitely have you back on again, mate, if that's all right with you. I've got it just on Steve's behalf. You went oh. to the Solomon Islands. Uh, yes. There may have been a... Uh... Might have been a boa on there, which is <laughs> one of the nicest looking snakes that you, you get to see when you're over there. Yeah, we've um, been going backwards and forwards to the Solomons for 20 years. My wife, Catherine Mosby, and I are patrons of a 
a project on the largest uninhabited island in the South Pacific, trying to keep it uninhabited and trying to keep it unlogged. And the way we do that is to attract eco-tourists and, and pay rangers to look after, you know, leatherback turtles and boring things like that. And, and uh, <laughs> the rubbish ha- things. <laughs> there happen to be eclectus parrots and hornbills wow. and pygmy parrots, mm. which are amazing. They're, they're parrots that are the size of a finch and they eat the lichen off the, the bark. But, yeah, we've got wow. rat... We call them ground boas over there or, yeah. or sleepy snakes. The locals all call them sleepy snakes. They're the, the most passive snakes in the world and they, they hang around in the little toilets and they're in your leaf house at night and things like that. And Occasionally you hear a bat squeak or a mouse squeak or something like that. <laughs> we know and, what that is. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, no, they're awesome little animals. Yeah, wow. That's brilliant. Love to go over there. We should do that. Absolutely. Well, I think no one's travelling very far at the moment. Not but, at the moment. But when all, when this all passes by, then... Um, Possibly a good place to be at the moment, though. Uh, yeah, except all the Australians have been asked to evacuate from there. I don't think oh, there's any cases over there, and, yeah, you'd be pretty safe. But, um, yeah, no, travelling's not, not a good thing at, at the moment. But, yeah, absolutely, it's an awesome place. It'd mm. be great to yeah, come across. We've had lots of lots of friends from South Australia or from Australia sort of head across there and have a great time on Tetapari. Mate, if people want to get hold of your books, you've got a website there... I've got a website, John L. Reed, R-E-A-D, um, but uh, they're printed by, uh, published by Wakefield Press, which is a South Australian publishing house. They're available in any bookstore in the nation. They're also available as e-books, Amazon. Yeah, if you look them up. If you, but yeah, no, they're widely available. Fantastic, and we'll put a link to your website on our website. Mate, thanks so much for coming on, and we really appreciate it under the circumstances too. Guys, if you're listening at home, stay inside. Stay safe, Stay yeah. safe. Mm. And, and stay as far apart as we are, about 1.5 metres, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I reckon. And, yep. guys, thank you for listening. Yep.